the faith. And today we'll be looking at how the gospel uh, shapes and transforms our lives. How does it do that? Well, we'll be looking at at that in Titus chapter 2. So let's read and listen to God's word. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now this is the word of the Lord. Uh, today we'll be looking at three deadly S's. Uh, these three deadly S's will get you into a lot of trouble. They are submission, slavery, and self-control. If you don't believe me, try bringing them up in a conversation. Things will turn sideways pretty quick. You'll get into hot water. You see, everyone wants to live the good life now. Everyone wants to be spiritually healthy. But we're not willing to sacrifice any of our freedoms or rights to live the good life. We like our freedom. We don't want to submit to authority. Now, one of my favorite authors captures where our society is at very well. Uh, listen to what Ed, Ed Welsh says in one of his books. Quote, in Western culture, our legal right to personal freedoms tends to infiltrate our theology. Anything that feels like restraint seems legalistic, end quote. And that's true, isn't it? We want to live well, we want the good life, but we don't want to sacrifice our freedoms in order to achieve it. Following rules just seems a little too legalistic. And this was the same in, for Titus in Crete. Our people were free to act as they pleased. And it's, and it's Titus's issue, yes, but it's also our issue too, because the surrounding culture seems to have creeped into the church. 
And we know this all too well, don't we? We've seen it in our schools and our workplaces that have changed what they think is right and good based on freedoms and rights. Now, some churches have followed suit by changing what they allow to suit what's going on in society. And dare I say it, some of our own thinking about what is right and wrong may have changed as well. And so when we come to God's word in Titus chapter 2, which calls us to submit and sacrifice, uh, we can find our hearts being reluctant to obey, to live God's way. And so how do, you, how do we overcome this? Well, we'll need to see God's grace in verses 11 and 12, those crucial verses. Read along with me and listen to what God says there. Verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. You see, these two verses are central, crucial for the whole book. They're about how God trains us to live his way, to live godly lives. And that's what we'll be looking at today, how to live godly lives in our families, in our workplaces, and everywhere else. So our main question today is, what does God's grace train us to do? It trains us to practice godliness, to model godliness, and to prioritize godliness. So practice, model, prioritize godliness. So point one, practice godliness. No matter what stage of life we're in, God has given us instructions about how to live godly lives in our families. God created us to live his way in our homes by obeying what Titus 2 says. You see, as I've gotten older, my taste in music has changed. I, but I never imagined that I'd be listening to children's songs as much as I do now. Well, truth be told, uh, disclaimer, I did listen to Colin Buchanan a lot before uh, my daughter Lydia was born. So, you know, there's that. But he has this really good song called Practice Being Godly. If you haven't heard it, or this afternoon looked it up, you must do it. It is really, really good. Uh, it's really what Titus is all about, how to practice being godly. And the chorus is spot on. I won't sing it, so it's okay, you can listen now. I won't sing it, but it goes something like this. Never give up, make it your aim. If you've been forgiven in Jesus' name, practice being godly. He paid the price for all our sin. His Holy Spirit dwells within, so center all you do on him, practice being godly. Beautiful song. You see, the gospel is at the center of it all. It's at the center of being godly. And the gospel is all about God's grace and how it has come to us in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross for you and for me. It's the gospel that rescues us from sin and death, but it's also through the gospel that we see how to live. It trains us to practice godliness in our lives now. That's what verses 11 and 12 in Titus is saying. So if you've been forgiven in Jesus' name, you have the ability to practice being godly. Uh, we saw this in our first Bible reading in Deuteronomy 6, uh, where God has saved 
the Israelites from the Egyptians, and then he shows them how to live as his people in the context of family. And so, but what does that mean for us here today? Well, look with me again at verses 2 to 6. And as I read, I see how many of these instructions are about self-control. So verse 2 to 6 says this, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Three times in that section, self-control is mentioned. Actually, most of these instructions need some form of self-control, don't they? So whether you're an older gentleman or a mature woman or a young lady or a young man, one way to practice being godly in the home is by practicing self-control. And self-control is tough, isn't it? It's tough because we usually have to exercise it when we want to do something we shouldn't. Or, we, or when we want to have something we shouldn't. It's, it's, it's more than just resisting that block of chocolate and eat, resisting eating the entire block of chocolate or binge watching your favorite uh, season all in one evening or into the morning and the next day. It's more than that. It's living God's way in the context of our families. It's about thinking about your thoughts and actions, verse 2. It's about watching what you say and what you drink, see verse 3. It's about how we look after our families, verses 4 and 5. You get the picture. At times, practicing self-control is not fun. It'll take energy. It'll take sacrifice. Which again is totally countercultural today, isn't it? Usually we're told that if something gets in your way and impinges on your rights and freedoms, then it mustn't be good for you. So you've got to get rid of that or go another way or not see that person. But what's even more countercultural is actually in verse 5, where it says that young women are to submit to their own husbands. How countercultural is that? I dare you to say that out there in the open um, tomorrow. A few things we need to keep in mind when we talk about submission, though. First, we need to understand that God isn't saying that if you're in a relationship where the husband is abusing the wife and it's dangerous, you have to stay in that marriage. That's not, that's not what it's saying. You have to put up with abuse and manipulation. That's never okay. Scripture never condones that behavior. Secondly, God created us male and female, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but with different roles in the context of marriage. So men are called to lovingly lead their wives like Christ, who died for the church. So even to death, husbands, we're to love our wives and lead them that they may be blessed. And as a picture of how the church submits to Jesus, wives are to help their husbands by following their lead, working together as a team rather than competing over who's in charge. And thirdly, 
uh, we need to remember that Jesus submitted to the Father. And this led to his sacrificial death on the cross. You see, Jesus and the Father are both equal in power, dignity, and authority. And yet, Jesus still submits. He still submits to his Father. And therefore, it indicates that submission isn't about inferiority or about inability or anything like that. It's just God's way of ordering relationships where two people aren't fighting about who's doing what. There's a lot more we can say on that subject. Uh, if you have the time, that's great. Um, but as is custom, if you have any more further questions, I defer you to Jared in the front row. He's changed his shirt, I've noticed. And so there, that's him. But yes, practicing being godly in our families requires sacrifice. It requires self-control for both men and women. It means doing what God thinks is wise and good, not what we think is wise and good. And God even gives us the reason why we're supposed to be doing this in verse 5. So that the word of God may not, the word of God may not be refiled. Literally, the Greek word is blasphemed. And so do you want to know how to undermine and blaspheme God's word? Well, just do the opposite of verses 2 to 6. That easy. You see, our society champions the individual, how it's all about you and what you want. And so when, what happens when people do that? What happens when they just look out for themselves, when they don't care about exercising self-control or living God's way? What happens to their families? Well, families can become dysfunctional, constantly fighting and arguing. Uh, just look at how most sitcoms represent the family. It's a mess. However, here in Titus, we see that God's grace actually teaches us and trains us to practice godliness in our families. And we do this by identifying ourselves in verses 2 to 6 and then seeking to live God's way in our families in response to what God has done. Will it be easy? No. Our sin is easy, but practicing godliness actually is quite difficult. I personally find it very difficult. As soon as you try and do this, you'll cop resistance. The world, our own bodies, and the devil will work against you, making it challenging. So what do we do then when that happens? Well, in times like that, we need to lean on God. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to make us more like his Son, so we can practice godliness in our homes. And we need to turn to each other, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family, and say, help, help me. This is difficult. But most importantly, we need to focus on God's grace and see what he has done for us in Christ and let that motivate us to live his way in our families. Okay, so we've seen how God's grace trains us to practice godliness in the context of family. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. It actually trains us to model godliness at work. So this leads us to point two. Model godliness. Model godliness. We're always on display to a watching world, particularly when we're at work. We spend most of our lives at work. And so how we behave uh, actually says something about whom we serve. So therefore, we need to model godliness while we're at work. 
Now, those of us who have the privilege of being parents already know what it's like to be on display all the time. You see, our kids are little sponges. They watch us and they copy us. Uh, sometimes it's cute, I know, but sometimes it isn't cute. Uh, and the same goes with how we behave at work. We're being watched by those around us, not to imitate us like our children, but to see how being a Christian changes the way we live. Of course, some people are out to get us, to watch us stumble and slip and be there and point the finger. Uh, but others are genuinely curious about God and his people. We don't know where the Holy Spirit is working, uh, but he does. And so Paul commands Titus to model good works. See that in verse 7. Uh, good works are the outworking of godliness. But notice the repeated idea as well in verses 7 to 10 about how believers are supposed to do this all the time. It says there in verse 7, in all respects be a model of good works. And then again in verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And bond servants or slaves uh, were actually the standard practice of you know, work in Titus's day. But moving on, in verse 10, we see the same thing again. We're not to pilfer or steal, but show good faith so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God. You see, we're to model godliness all the time. We don't uh, punch on and punch off being a Christian. So while we're at home, we're to practice godliness. We just saw that. And also at work, we're to model godliness. And did you catch the reason there in verse 10? So that we may adorn the doctrine of God, literally the teaching of God. And the point is this, that what we do says something about whom we serve. It says something about God and his word. Yes, God's grace saves us, but it also trains us to model godliness in our workplaces. So it should shape the way that we communicate, that we will speak with dignity and respect and integrity. Why? So that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about us. Verse 8. And notice that word us in verse 8. It doesn't say you. And so again, it's the countercultural nature of being a Christian, that we're, we're part of a family now. What I do, what you do, reflects on us as a whole. So instead of being concerned about yourself, Titus, you should care about how you behave and how it reflects on God's family. Therefore, we can work to either put our opponents to shame and adorn the teaching of God, or we can validate what our opponents say and make the teaching of God unattractive. Those are the two options. And so when you go to work tomorrow, or whenever you next go to work, how can you model godliness? What are you to do? Well, again, look at verses 7, and 7 to 10. We're to be men and women of integrity, verse 7. And we're to watch what we say, including our tone and attitude, verse 8. We're to be submissive to those in charge and not argue about it, verse 9. And we're not to pilfer or steal. It's in verse 10. This is what it looks like to model godliness in our workplace, wherever we work. 
but how does God's grace actually help us do this? Well, if we look again at verses 11 to 13, we see that believers are waiting for Jesus to return. And this indicates that life on earth here and now is not all there is. We're actually waiting for the real good life to begin in the future when we go and join our Father in heaven in eternal bliss. You see, this changes the way that we work. So we're to understand that we're on a temporary assignment, right? We're not to work hard for ourselves, but we're to work hard so that God may be uh, glorified. And this is totally different from the way most people go to work these days. Uh, over in my short lifetime, I've just noticed that people sometimes see work as a necessary evil, that I do this so I can go and have my vocation, I can go and have the weekend and the party and whatever. And some people see it as a way to get status and recognition. I can keep going up and up and up and the respect goes up with it. Or some view it as a way of just earning money, lots and lots of money so they can spend it however they want. But believers are to model godliness at work. That's how we're different. By seeing God's grace and, and, and reflecting the teaching of God's word in the way that we work by doing verses 7 to 10. But what happens when we fail? I mean, we're not perfect, right? What happens when we stumble? Well, we own it. We repent and we fall back on the grace of God and we lean on the promise in 1 John, which says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us because of our trust in Jesus. You see, this then enables us to apologize quickly and seek to rectify the situation. That way, we adorn the teaching of God by actually doing what it says. This is the way that we model godliness in the workplace. So how are you going at it? How are you going at modeling godliness at work? How's your language? Uh, do you submit to leadership without arguing and grumbling? You see, Christians should be the best workers because we're not motivated by pride or greed or pleasure, but we're motivated by the grace we've been shown in the gospel. And this is how God's grace trains us to model godliness at work. Uh, but it also, the gospel, uh, God's grace also trains us to prioritize godliness in our lives. So this leads us to point three, prioritize godliness. Uh, God's grace trains us to prioritize the things of God rather than the things of the world. Now, pursuing godliness starts with God's grace that reshapes our priorities that are in our hearts. Uh, we see a pattern emerging again of turning away from the world and turning towards God in the next uh, section, verses uh, 11 to 14. Uh, all of this is because of the gospel of grace, God's grace, how Jesus took our punishment on the cross. He died and rose again, defeated sin and death, so that we could live for him, so that we could practice being godly. And you see, God's grace is how his people renounce un um, ungodliness and pursue godliness. God's grace trains us to put away worldly passions and to be zealous for good works. No longer do we need to live in fear or on the run from God 
because Jesus has freed us from being constant lawbreakers. It reminds me of movies where a prisoner has escaped from jail. They're on the run. Uh, they're going from hideout to hideout. They panic, they're frantic, they live in fear, they're always looking over their shoulder, spooked by sirens, and when they see law enforcement, they panic. And so they run fast, heart throbbing, adrenaline pumping. That's us folks before uh, God, before embracing the gracious offer of salvation. Apart from the grace of God, we're all outlaws. We're all running passionately, furiously, frantically away from God. That's what verse 11 and 12 are saying there. But if we receive God's grace offered, in the peop offered to all people, verse 11, uh, then we're free. We're redeemed. And the, la the language of redeemed is uh, that you pay for something, you pay the price of something or you pay a debt in order to own it. And so in our case, our huge debt of sin has been paid for by Christ. And now we're his. We can be his. So instead of running frantically from God, we can pursue good works. We can run passionately towards God. So what does all this look like? Uh, what does this look like in, in our everyday life? How do we prioritize godliness? Well, firstly, we need to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And we need to contemplate the gospel of grace and what God has done for us in Christ. And then we need to pursue godliness with zeal, with extreme passion. So let me ask you, how are you going at passionately pursuing godliness in your own life? And what things in your life should you be saying no to more often? Or would you consider yourself a person who is zealous for good works? You see, it's really about reorientating ourselves towards God daily, prioritizing godliness each day to live as his redeemed people. Just like in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, the Israelites were called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might, because they were saved. God had saved them. And in the same way, we too are to love the Lord our God with all, all our heart, soul, and might, because God has graciously saved us. That way, we're worshipping God alone. And for example, if your primary aim is to have a well-behaved family, and you try and do what Titus 2 is saying, then what you're really doing is you're worshipping your family. Or if your primary aim is to get ahead at work, to make more money and gain respect with your boss, then what you're really worshipping is your job and the status that it brings. However, if you completely rely on God's grace to motivate you and to live his way, and you focus on what Jesus has done, then you're worshipping God his way as described in this chapter, empowered by the Spirit. You see, this is the difference the gospel makes for us. It takes our family, our work, and ourselves off the throne of our hearts and rightly puts God in the center of our lives. Otherwise, when you or your family or your work let you down, you'll become frustrated or even depressed. You'll start to do whatever it takes to get things back to how it used to be. If it's your family, you'll, you'll burden them with unrealistic expectations, things you, you're not even doing yourself, 
rather than humbly relying on God's grace yourself, practicing godliness and self-control. If it's your job, you'll expect your efforts to be seen and rewarded uh, the way that you want, rather than modeling godliness and making God's teaching attractive to others. Now, this is how the gospel should change the way we live, regardless of our life stage, our gender, or our job. We all have something to do here, but it needs to be grounded on God's grace, on the gospel. So in your families, practice godliness in response to God's grace. When you're at work, model godliness. Model what it means to be a redeemed Christian. And prioritize godliness wherever he leads you. Now let's ask God to help us do this, motivated by his gospel. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we're humbled uh, by the perfect life of Jesus who modelled for us how to be truly godly. We ask that the Holy Spirit would equip us all this week to practice, model and prioritise godliness wherever you lead us. Uh, Keep us from merely listening to your word and not doing what it says, but help us put it into practice so that your word may be adorned, so that your people may have joy and so that you would be glorified through your people. For we ask it all in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.